I'm reminded <clears throat> of a full-page ad I saw in a newspaper in which there was a man dressed in a business suit with a briefcase beside him, tie. He was sitting in a full lotus position with his fingers, forefinger and thumb touching, had an angelic smile on his face. Huge picture of this man sitting in full lotus. And under him, in banner blaring headlines, it said, Mutual Fund Nirvana. <laughs> now the reason we laugh at that is because it's so obvious that there's some inconsistency in views. <laughs> Something's wrong there. And yet I'm wondering how many of us see that same inconsistency of views within our own practice? How many of us really understand the depth of that spiritual struggle associated with our angelic smile sitting in place, thinking in terms of mutual fund nirvana? So I'd like to talk tonight about that conflict, if I could. And I'd like to just offer a story from the Buddhist literature. The Buddha was uh, in attendance with his monks around when a couple of ascetics of that time uh, came into his, um, into his circle. One of them was a dog ascetic, and the other was an ox ascetic. And it was described in the scene that the dog ascetic was somebody who crawled on his hind legs and only ate when people threw food on the ground. He ate like a dog, and he was said to curl up in dog fashion by the Buddha's feet when he was in the tent. The ox ascetic had a fake tail on him, Again, crawling on his hands. I mean, this must have been a scene, right? <laughs> if you can just imagine these two people come crawling in and sort of slurping and acting like dogs and cows. And yet the Buddha was, you know, had enormous respect for that. There was no sense of, of belittlement at all. And in this particular uh, sutta, one or the other of the ascetics says to the Buddha, maybe barks or I don't know, <laughs> but anyway, says, communicates to the Buddha, he says, um, what will my training, where will my training lead me? And the Buddha said, I don't want to answer that. Don't make me answer that. And as the way of the suttas go, he was asked three times by this ascetic. And finally, uh, under those forced conditions, the Buddha said, you know, the best thing that will happen to you, the best thing, is that you will be born a dog or a cow in the next life. Suddenly, one or the other of those ascetics stood up <laughs> in, 
and it said, of course, that he joined the Sangha of monks and lived happily ever after. But the point was, I think the Buddha was trying to make, at least it is the point that I took from it, is that if we get into the wrong view of what we're doing, if we have the wrong context of where we're headed and what we're working for, we actually complicate the problem. We create more struggle and difficulty for ourselves. And in the often quoted yet very appropriate analogy of the wrath that the Buddha talked about, he said that view, right view, was setting, building your raft and knowing that there is another bank. Knowing that there is freedom. And you see the other bank. You see the other bank. And he says, without that view of where we are going, he says it's like trying to churn butter from water. Can't be done. And right view is so important to this practice that as I start to uncover how important it is, it feels to me like it frames all the other steps of the path. Last night, Narayan spoke very nicely about right or wise effort. And as we begin to understand how these different links or steps in the path work, it's not so much a hierarchy of one through eight that you work, but rather, if you think of it more as a circle, and each of the links of the path spread around that circle, each feeds the other in a myriad of different ways. And from that circled perspective, each one has links to all the other ones. But right view, in some way, establishes the context for everything else to follow. Now, when we wake up in the morning, the first thing we do is we open our eyes and see a life of separate things. Because a view can be interpreted two ways. Right, wise view is often interpreted as wise understanding. But I like the word view because what view does is it allows you to see the world through your eyes. How do we see the world? As you look at me and I look at you, how are we seeing the world? What do we take the world to be? Wise understanding, that interpretation feels a little too cognitive to me. Like I'm sort of putting something on top of how I understand or how I see the world in terms of my understanding. So I will use the word view instead of understanding in this, but you'll see in the literature those being often interchangeable. So how do we see? I mean, how do we look out? I'm sure the man sitting in full lotus was looking out just as we are and thinking, oh, great, mutual fund heaven. Because how we take the world to be, our practice will duplicate the strategies and efforts of that view. And if we see the world in terms of separation, 
then our efforts will go towards eliminating separation or struggling with it or somehow negating it. But in any sense, it's seen as a hindrance, as an obstacle, as a barrier. I was once with Nisargadatta Maharaj in India in 1980, before he died. Very powerful and wonderful teacher. A simple man living in very simple surrounds. And I went to him as a monk, and I spent a great deal of time through his encouragement telling him about my life as a monk and all the practice I had done and all that thinking that he was feeling, um, that he was honoring me in some way, but of course he kept asking me questions and he kept having me sit down in front of him for a number of days. And then one time I came and just plopped down in front of him thinking that he wanted me to go through my spiel. And he said, um, what are you doing sitting there? <laughs> I thought you wanted me to. He said, no, no, go back to the back of the room. He says, you haven't been telling me anything worthwhile for this whole... So I went back to the back, and um, he started saying to me, he said, um, you know, you're like a person carrying a flashlight, trying to run beyond its beam. He said, the view that you carry of the world has become such a struggle for you that you're trying to run beyond the beam of what you see and how you see it carrying the thing itself. See that? You feel it? Feel the problem? And then he said, you can do one of two things. You can practice for the rest of your life, or you can drop the view. You can drop the assumption of separation. And because I didn't know what he was talking about, <laughs> I went back and practiced for it. <laughs> but the beginning, he, he cracked the egg. He tapped me on the shoulder. He, in his very quiet way, woke me. Because I started to realize that what I was seeing was not the truth. It was my assumptions I kept placing upon life itself. I would wake up with that assumption of me and you. And then everything throughout the day reinforced those assumptions. And that I was working with my meditation, with my spiritual life, trying to resolve the conflict between maintaining and establishing and holding that view and my heart, which desperately knew a new reality. My heart knew it, and your heart does. For this is not really meditation of the mind. 
this is not really about doing something to the mind so that we can crack the view and see something different. The mind will continually perpetuate what it has learned and how it's learned to see. It will throw thoughts, from my point of view, for the rest of our lives at us. And when there is thought, there is going to be an inherent view of separation through those think- that thinking. But there is a dimension to reality that is beyond sight, sound, smell. It's like twilight zone. <laughs> And that's why this is called insight meditation of the heart. And the Buddha said, what he taught was the sure heart's release, the bondage of the heart. Now science is vastly ahead of our understanding in this way. I am amazed sometimes in reading scientific literature for how close it's coming to the very conclusions that are spiritual philosophies. Let me read you something. This is by a man, a Nobel Prize winning physicist and uh, absolute um, genius, Richard Feynman. And he says, he writes, just a few paragraphs here, is no one inspired by our present picture of the universe? This value of science remains unsung by singers. You are reduced to hearing not a song or poem, but an evening lecture about it. This is not yet a scientific age. Perhaps one of the reasons for this silence is that you do not know how to read the music. For instance, the scientific article may say, the radioactive phosphorus content of the cerebellum of the rat decreases to one half in a period of two weeks. Now, what does that mean? It means that phosphorus that is in the rat's brain and also in mine and yours is not the same phosphorus as it was two weeks ago. It means the atoms that are in the brain are being replaced. The ones that were there before have gone away. So what is this mind of ours? What are these atoms with consciousness? last week's potatoes. They now can remember what was going on in my mind a year ago, a mind which has long since been replaced. To note that a thing I call my individuality is only a pattern or dance, that is what it means when one discovers how long it takes for the atoms of the brain to be replaced by other atoms. The atoms come into my brain, dance a dance, and then go out. There are always new atoms but always doing the same dance, remembering what that dance was yesterday. So we are not yet in a scientific age. Now what we try to do in meditation is that we create the ideal conditions for a simulation a simulator, you might think of this as a big simulator, like one of those plane simulators, to create a way for us to 
let go of an entrenched way of looking at life and allow in another possibility. And we do that by saying things like, don't judge, hold, don't um, criticize, or um, don't resist, or don't hold on, just be aware of. We say things like relax and be receptive to life and let it come in rather than in moving and trying to jar or change life in any way whatsoever. We try to create the optimum environment for the kind of view that holds us entrenched to be just be to go into abeyance just a little bit. Just to so that the view of separation, which is all the dance of the resistance and of the of the toing and froing and of the wanting and not wanting and the fearing, just to go into abeyance just a little bit. And we encourage the heart out in the practice to come forward, self-kindness, to really honor yourself, to honor what it is that's going on in you, and not to struggle with things, because it's in that struggle that it breaks down into a sense of me and that other thing. And so we try to bring forth the view of unification and connectedness through non-struggle, through non-intervention. Because the only thing we're bringing to our life is observation, light, light. And therefore, light by itself, does not interfere with the process. It doesn't intrude. It doesn't create any distortion. And because all we're adding to our inward environment is light, the light of our attention, it's completely trustworthy. It can be completely trusted. No judgment. I'm not judging it. It's just revealing. It's just what's there. And therefore, I can begin to see how it is that I work and distort the qualities of myself all along the way. I can see how when this comes up, I fight against it. When this comes up, I hold on to it. I'm toing and froing and reacting, fearing that this may happen, afraid that it won't, desiring something else. And I see that. I see that that's how my inside works. And the meditation has worked perfectly when it reveals those tendencies and patterns of mind. But we're so used to thinking in terms of wrong view of things being separate from ourselves and being personally related to everything I do that we take those things as indications that we are bad people, that we're angry people if I see anger or fearful and I'm a coward. We have patterns that arise from our past which predetermine how it is that we'll even have the, how we will even orient ourselves to this internal work. If self-doubt comes up or self-condemnation, inadequacy, 
And all the environment is trying to do is to reveal those things to us. Just through our attention, through light. Light. Just to see them. Not to personalize them. Not to go out here with a conclusion about myself. But just to see them. And when we see them free of the view of personal struggle, which is the view of separation, the view of object and subject and me and you, the view of self-improvement that Narayan talked about last night, the view of wanting to become, the view of ambition, then when we sustain or just allow those things less importance, because they're just what they are, emotions, patterns, thoughts, feelings, attitudes, we see thoughts are just what they are. And therefore, when our thoughts in the morning when we wake up start describing our reality to us, we don't buy into that reality because we see they're just thoughts. We see that they, that they have been conditioned and hardened and encouraged in a certain way, and when you put that in, that's what comes out. And because we have lived conditioned and believing that we ha- are separate, that we are not connected, Every moment we reassert that opinion, that's what's going to come out. But that doesn't fool us anymore. We don't get fooled by that anymore. Because it's just thinking. It's just a conditioned machine. Just thinking. And we start noticing how certain strategies in our meditation are really the strategies that we've lived with our whole lives. And that the strategies we lived with our whole lives are being employed because we're still holding the same view of life as a struggle, as something to get over. As this view of separation and distance and loneliness. And so, of course, competition and accumulation and ownership and possessiveness and self-serving and aggrandizement and selfishness and greed, those are the methods and strategies from the view of separation. And so I sit down in my meditation, which, whose whole purpose is to establish a new view, and I just bring forth my old. And I use my old strategies of competition. If any of you have come with someone you know, checking them out to see if they're sitting as long as you, (laughs) if they're as good of a yogi as you are. That sense of competition, of ambition, continues right into this new process. 
But what we have to remember is that when our mind becomes reinforced with comparison and evaluation and judgment and hostility and envy and anger and avarice and self-doubt and self-unworthiness, those are just the representation of wrong view. People come and say, how can I get rid of this judgment, this judging mind? As if getting rid of judging were the problem. The problem is that when we assert wrong view moment after moment, judgment is going to be there. The problem is not in the judgment. It's in the assumption that underlines the judgment, that I am not connected with you. To let go of that assumption resolves the conflict of judgment. There's no way to keep wrong view and eliminate judgment. How can we do that? We just keep asserting you and me, and of course I'm going to judge you and me, because I feel distant and separate from you. And if I feel distant and separate from you, I'm going to compete against you, or feel less than you, or somehow evaluative or comparative. And so we make the things that come out of the view the problem. The things that arise from the view, the mind states, the struggles, will not cease until the view ceases. How then am I to work within right view? How then can I encourage and invite right view into my life? And the first way as I mentioned before, and I want to re-stress, to re-emphasize, is simply not to believe in this separation. In a book by Thomas uh, Douglas Harding, it's called On Having No Head. And he said, for just a moment, picture yourself as if you didn't have a head and that this is just the way it was, that you weren't looking out through a mind, that this is simply how it is. And therefore, there's no me as opposed to you. This is just how it is. To begin to see thought for being just what it is, Thought, by its very nature, divides. Meaning and words depict and isolate and separate out. And so when a thought comes through the mind and is grasped a hold of, the world is seen through that thought in terms of me and you. I'm the thinker of the thought. But you can also see, even at whatever level of experience we have in meditation, that thoughts just come and go without your encouragement. This really is a very deep and profound insight. Although most people in the early stages of meditation 
see it as a problem. Their mind is so noisy, how can I get rid of and over those thoughts? But you see that strategy of getting over and getting rid of those thoughts creates not only more thoughts, but just establishes the wrong view all over again. The view of connectedness establishes as its intention connecting, healing, coming together. And when we realize that we have just been fostering that sense of separation and distance through identification with the thinking, suddenly our heart takes on a different profundity. Because here there is silence. Here things are together. Here the mystery is intoned. You can feel it settle down on us as I speak. So we began to have a different relationship to our thinking, to ourselves, as we deeply begin to understand how these patterns of mind arise on their own will, on their own force and momentum. And we work with other ways to heal life. We look for opportunities to bring things together rather than to split them apart. How can I stay connected in this moment? May become an overriding investigation. For instance, we're in the middle of an argument and we're so full of our self-righteousness and our point of view that we are immediately resolved to turn away and to never speak to this person again. And we're just following the path of our wrong view. And so something clicks in us, some memory of the insight meditation retreat I did. And the word connectedness comes up in my memory. And I say, no, I'm not turning away, I'm turning towards. Come on, let's discuss this. Let's talk about this. And you're sitting there embroiled in the self-righteous perception. And yet you're talking about trying to reconnect And suddenly you find yourself willing to listen to the other person's point of view. Now a funny thing happens when you attend to someone else and actually listen to them. You can no longer hold on to anger, which is only only sustained through your holding on to your perspective. But when you listen to someone, you have to give your perspective up in order to really listen to them. And anger is resolved through the connectedness of effective listening. In fact, greed, hatred, and delusion, the poisons of our mind, are all resolved through connecting 
and not sustaining and perpetuating the old stance and view of the world. And most of us work very diligently in our meditation to uproot, even the words, uproot these qualities of mind, when in fact they're based on wrong assumptions. Why struggle with them? They're not true. Why struggle with my judgment, my greed, my anger, my selfishness? It's based on a misperception of things. Let me use those very occasions, those very mind states as cues, signals to turn towards rather than to follow the scripts and turn away. Let me use my cue of selfishness and greed not to take and detract from, but to be generous and to supply. And this is what Maharaji was saying to me. Then the struggles of the practice are not struggles at all. There is room in my consciousness to permit and to allow whatever arises without force or effort, without struggle or apprehension or fear. Because they really say nothing about the basic reality. They say an awful lot about the assumptions of the wrong one. And therefore I don't struggle. I don't struggle with my selfishness. I don't struggle with my ego. But I pay attention to it. Because the thing that connects me to it through right view is my connected attention. And therefore when they arise, not to watch them is to reinforce the sense of them being separate from me. But for me to connect with them with my caring heart and my awareness and my attention begins to move it towards the other way, to, to reestablish the basic true view of right connection, of connectedness, of things being together. And therefore, we have at our disposal the only thing we need to heal the world of separation. And that is our loving attention. Our loving attention internally for the problems that seem to come through and arise in me. Just to see them. Not to be disturbed by them. They're the expressions, the perfume of an old way of life of an old view that has long since been seen through, or you wouldn't be sitting here, of a statement of fiction, 
of a wrong syllogism, a poor premise, that most of society unfortunately believes. But that's not true. And my heart knows that. And so I go the other way. And I move towards healing. Sometimes trauma can force that healing on us. I did a meditation retreat three weeks after the Oklahoma City bombing in Oklahoma City. And everyone who was at the retreat was coming down from a space in which the, the bomb itself, the explosion, had been so traumatic that it had thrown them into a universal heart. They just, they, they couldn't, it was very difficult for them to speak about it, but they attempted to say, they, they said that they couldn't, they had to go to the scene. They had to help out in some way or other. Even if no help were needed, they would do something. Bring water to the rescuers, anything. They could not be benign bypassers. They couldn't be just passive witnesses to this event. You see, when we establish the universal heart, right action is there. We don't have to plan it out. We know what we need to do. And as they were coming down from this group, conscious, heartfelt unity, they were re-entering their separation. And it was so painful for them. And I was there almost picking up the pieces after the event, the second explosion. There was another woman who I met in California at a retreat who 12 years earlier had had a young son, five-year-old son, die. And she said that she tried to make sense of it and there was no sense that could be made out of that event. And yet, she said, there was no way for her to feel any solace, any comfort. No, it, nothing could support her. Nothing felt like it could take away the pain. And what happened was that she settled into a very deep and profound understanding of how her son was no longer in form immediately in front of her eyes, but became part of all form of the earth itself, of a substrata that contained all human and non-human life. And that she would stand on the earth and know that the relationship was still there. That's from the heart. That's not from the mind. When we are blasted through the mind stops. It has no way to go. It can't cover or deny. It is A hole has been blasted into such dimensions, by, to such an extreme, that it is, takes us into that heart. 
And so here we are, working. The words are there for us. Just watch, don't judge. Just see and observe. Hold things with awareness and with affection. Don't dismiss them. Don't turn from them. Don't resist them. Don't hold on to them. Let them be what they are. Those are the words of right connection. Those are the words of the heart. Those are not the words of the view of separation and distance and ambition. And unless our strategies mirror the strategies of the heart, we are just reinforcing mutual fund nirvana. The choice is ours. Could we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.